Hey there. Ever wonder what happens to all those amazing screenplays that never make it to the big screen? Wonder no more. Welcome to Table Read Podcast, where we bring those undiscovered gems to life. Picture this. Talented actors giving incredible performances with the occasional laugh or blooper thrown in, produced by award-winning pros. From drama to comedy, TV pilots to feature films, there's something for everyone. And guess what? We release new episodes every week, so don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Table Read Podcast, where great stories finally get their chance to shine. Excellent news, everyone. It is part two of our crossover episode with the Good, the Bad, and the Basic podcast. It's actually part three because if you go onto their Patreon, you can listen to part actual one. And then you can listen to us talk about Wonder Woman. Part two was the episode that you heard last week on Bitches on Comics, which was with Lex and M from the delightful podcast that I just mentioned. And we were talking about underrated female characters. Now this week, we are doing exactly the same thing. And we are gonna go ahead and link to them. You are gonna be able to find them. We love them a lot. We hope that you subscribe. But for now, without further ado, let's let us talk for ourselves. Here's us, Bitches on Comics meets Good Bad Basic Podcast Extravaganza, part three, the finale. My next person is also part of the X-Men, and she's my favorite Marvel hero, and that would be Miss Anna Marie LeBeau, a.k.a. Rogue. Rogue! First of all, she's like the strongest woman in the world, right? Like, legit. <laughs> like, I, I, I have to stand. I have to. Um, and as a kid who spent a lot of time alone, I didn't think it was such a bad thing that she couldn't touch other people. It's like, you gotta take the good with the bad, sis. Um... <laughs> But I love this character. I love everything about her. I know in the comics and in the animated series, there was a lot of emphasis put on the fact that she can absorb people's characteristics as well. And that's kind of been depleted or completely removed in any films that she's been in, which hasn't been many. But I like the idea that Rogue is like a literal empath, right? Like she can seriously get to know people by touching them, by absorbing their personality and seeing who they are. I love the fact that she is a superhero whom, as we noted before, she was raised by Mystique as her foster mother. But, you know, she was cursed the same way that Poison Ivy and Storm were with a mediocre partner in the form of Gambit. So (laughs) I just I'm so tired. I'm so tired, you guys. I just want to see this woman's power fully actualized before we have to dive headfirst into the mediocre partner. And I think that's one of my biggest gripes of all of these characters. They haven't been done full justice in in um, animated features and or films, sometimes not even in their own comics. But, you know, we have to hammer home the point of the XYZ love interest for what? Like she can't even touch people, so why don't you just focus on the years that it takes her to get control of her powers first? Well, you know, it's that insistence on the male gaze. That's what I think, I, you know, just all clicked for me as you were speaking. Um, like, it's just such, it's so frustrating because it's constantly got to be brought back to, oh, here's a powerful woman, but let's make sure you understand how she relates to men. And it's like, what? No one cares. No one cares what Rogue thinks of Gambit. Sure, we've all dated losers. That's fine. Go for it. But I don't need to be spending a lot of my time thinking about that. 
you know? Right. And I think it's interesting, too, like, Rogue is significantly aged down in the earlier X-Men movies. Like, she's played by Anna Paquin, and she's, like, 16 when the X-Men meet her. Um, and then she has this, like, there is no gambit, but she has this relationship with Bobby, a.k.a. Iceman. And it's like a crush on Wolverine, right? Yeah, she did have a crush on Wolverine. And now that I could almost understand um, feeling like this person understands you or like they saved your life. And as a teenager, confusing gratitude with attraction. But like and I'm glad they didn't spend too much time trying to make that a thing. But the relationship with Bobby was super weird, too because Bobby's gay <laughs> right I'm like do you understand who he is and then when he dates uh Kitty Pride played by Ellen Page and you're just like oh beards beards for beards I love it <laughs> <laughs> oh beards for beards needs to become a thing I like this trademark oh it gosh, I can't okay sorry <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say something that's interesting about Rogue is the trajectory with Gambit because Gambit sucks when he shows up. Like he's the worst and he kind of has a really long arc of just being the most terrible. So a lot of times in fiction, obviously, we see like the woman who has to change for the dude. Gambit had to change for Rogue because he wasn't good enough for her. And then he becomes a better person. And like in, you know, the newer series of like Mr. and Mrs. X and the Gambit and Rogue series, Kelly Thompson kind of writes this gambit who just is like over the moon for Rogue and will do anything for her. And you start to see his like monogamy and you start to see like all of this like stuff about gambit that you wouldn't have ever expected back in the day. And I just think that that's interesting. Dear listener, I do want to clarify that like Sarah was like very anti gambit and Rogue, like not (laughs) happy with what was happening with them. And she was like kind of pissed that she had to revise her opinion. Yeah. <laughs> like when when Gambit pulled his shit together because she was like, fuck, I don't really like him. Yeah. And I thought that was like really cool. I I think that you're a very generous reader for that fact because well, I have not changed. <laughs> oh yeah. And I was always like, I don't like Gambit. His costume is ridiculous. And like <laughs> I don't I don't get why he's from like white New Orleans. Like I don't understand any of this. Like he's like, ugh, I just don't like any of it. And he gets on my nerves. And also Jean hates him. <laughs> like in the animated series. You see Jean and Gambit like verbally sparring with each other all the time because he tries to talk down to Jean and she's like, yeah, that doesn't happen with me. I'm Jean Grey. Like, (laughs) don't talk down to me ever. And Storm comes to her defense. Like, Storm is the one who's just like, Gambit, you're being an ass. Like, you need to chill out. So it's like the women made Gambit be a better person and that kind of rules. Well, I love the fact that Gambit did go through his little great character arc of being a decent person. (laughs) I have this very controversial opinion that if a man's going to go through the character arc of being a decent person, he needs to do it apart from the woman. Because I I don't like this message being pushed that if a man really wants you, you can fix him and you can change him and you can mold him and like the right woman's love can change you. I don't think we should be pushing this message, especially to young girls, right. that this is like build a man workshop out here. It's not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's really true. <laughs> <laughs> and if you did, don't build fucking Gambit. Gambit. Yeah, all the men to build. Um, <laughs> but I want to say that Gambit and Rogue were separated for years and years and years. And that was a lot of where Gambit's arc happens, right? So, I mean, I, I'm not going to defend 
the situation <laughs> too much because the irony of you even like a little bit doing it is so sweet to me. Yes, because I am so many conversations where we're like, I would punch Gambit repetitively. Yeah, repetitively, I, repetitively, repeatedly. No, that's, repeatedly. <laughs> that's legit. Um, because yeah, because Emma and I talk about that a lot. Like, right, we're, we're all about redemption arcs, but it has to be real and true. And not only that, but in your redemption arc, you. You have to do the time. You know what and I mean? You do the crime, you got to do the punishment. Of course. And Rogue walks away from him many times. And that's something that's, to me, like I said, I'm not the person to defend Gambit. But I do appreciate that even though there was a lot of moments of bad writing throughout this entire arc, that Rogue is the one who gets to make the decisions. And, like, I mean, she drops him in Antarctica, like, at a certain point and is, like, deal with your own life. You want to get out of Antarctica, you figure it out, and just leaves. And then he does come back, like, because he's, like, the cat that won't go away or whatever. (laughs) But, but like, I mean, as I say, I'm not a Gambit fan, but I do have to give some credit because Gambit does have to go through his own struggle and his own arc, and Rogue doesn't fix that for him. And that, nice. I, I honestly, I think that it just comes down to the fact that eventually there's like a woman writer on the book because that was, you know, it was always like, well, Rogue, how are you going to deal with this guy? He like seems like he's like going to cheat on you and break your heart and like he's a heartbreaker and like all that stuff. And it just never ended up panning out that way. Like it kind of does a little bit, but far and away, like once Kelly Thompson comes in, she just kind of had to like get Gambit to clean up his act because we were all really sick of him. Right. You can only be like a creepy lech for so long before people are like, dude, uh, I'm I'm good. Like, I'm, I'm good on this. Right. Uh, but also, I'm sick of talking about Gambit, so can we move on? Yeah. <laughs> can we go back to Rogue? Killing him was always an option, though. Why didn't we yes. utilize that option? Yes, of course. Kill Gambit. I love that idea. <laughs> <laughs> I love that, actually. I'm, I'm on board. So tell me more about Rogue. Okay, we talked a little bit about, like, her awesome power set. But, Em, I'm also curious, like, why does she specifically appeal to you? Well... Full disclosure, you guys, I had a really rough childhood. Um, And when you're a kid and you feel powerless, it's very natural to gravitate to characters that um, are powerful. I spent a lot of time reading as a kid. I was even more voracious reader then than I am now. Um, I tell people all the time, like my heroes, my enemies and my best friends, um, the first group of like people in my life all came from books <laughs> and um the road really char- identify with that <laughs> the rogue character is a character that i love um and i my only real frustration with rogue honestly was the resistance she had to her power set for so long um which i also think is like low-key the writers trying to punish a powerful woman because i don't believe that they would have written a man with that set of powers who was like oh no what is life it's so hard being me um but she had she had the power to uh, influence people around her she had the power to physically change circumstances no one was gonna boss rogue around no one was going to tell her what to do because you were not capable yeah i mean rogue fucked up captain marvel like that person has a amazing power set and rogue was like gotcha with my hands you know like amazing 
Yeah, I love the fact that that act, her absorbing the powers of Carol Danvers, had so much repercussion in both of their lives. And the Rogue's arc and her redemption arc, I mean, if you want to talk about a redemption arc that's actually, like, believable and, like, organic and painful and long, like, that was Rogue, you know? Like, even to this day, her and Captain Marvel haven't seen the end of each other. And a lot of times Rogue doesn't know how much of her personality is Carol's, you know? So like she's always at odds with herself. And to me, that's like such a unique thing in comics. You have a lot of people be like, oh, like multiple personality or something like that. But it's like, no, Rogue has another person's memories in her head. (laughs) Like that is so interesting and so unexplored. Nobody really touches on that because a lot of times it's like, well, here's this like sad story of the girl who like kills the first boy that she kisses and like things like that. And so, I mean, you know, as we say before, a lot of times her story is again and again, like cycled through like, how do the men around her view her and things like that. But it's like, you know, you have Mystique and Destiny as her moms. And so like you have this like brilliant setup for a character because she did something really bad when she was 18, you know, or whatever, and she can't take it back. And she has to learn to live with that. And she has to try to make amends in the way that she can. And that to me is what's always so interesting about Rogue. I I just for the first time realized, because you're all Lost Girl fans, I would love to see if you think this pans out, is Rogue and Bo are a lot alike. Like, Bo kills the first person she sleeps with because she's a succubus, and she doesn't know that she has to feed off of the chi of humans, and so she sucks him dry. And then she goes on this, like, running for her life. But it seems in some ways Bo gets to be, like, what Rogue could be. Bo understands her powers, learns her powers, and doesn't fall on one or other side of this, like, false divide made in her community. And... Rogue, I feel like, never gets to quite have that same thing. Like, Bo gets to be like, my powers are fucking sexy. I love my powers. Like, this is the best. I mean, it does seem like the best power set ever. And <laughs> I, I just feel like I never had made the connection with Rogue before, but I wonder if you all see that, too. I do, but she's, her character is being punished, so of course she's not going to be living her best life. <laughs> of course, of course. No, there's definitely something in there. Um Definitely, there, there are parallels to be drawn. Uh, I think Rogue, though, is also, just because of who she is, it's what a what an excellent character to explore. Um, I mean, identity, right? Identity yes. and, like, sense of self. And, like, how do you become the person that, that you want to be? Or, like, in what is what is controllable and what is just is, you know? That you oh, my can't- God. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I just got so excited. I was like, oh my God. No, <laughs> I thought no, I thought you were gonna expand on the point because I was just thinking it was like, yeah, that's that's fascinating. Particularly yeah, what that'd be really interesting. I'd like to see that. And that's something that, that they don't talk about, right? Right? Because it's much, like yeah. um like you said, it's like it's about a boy. It's not about how do I form conviction of self. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, and also intimacy issues, right? Like, that's a huge thing with Rogue that, like, it gets put up as, like, it's her problem. She needs to work this out a lot of the time. But it's, like, she has great reasons to not trust Gambit. Like, she has great reasons to want to protect herself and to, like, you know, not necessarily go after these, like, intimate relationships that have nothing to do with what her powers are. So you have to think about how intimacy issues rise up in our own lives, like the things that keep us from expressing ourselves fully and things like that. And I think that all of those are questions 
that I think of Rogue and I think of that. And if I ever do think of like Gambit as a good foil for her or whatever, is that it's, he also has these intimacy issues, but they're totally different. Like, you know, just about macho shit, but Rogue's intimacy issues are fascinating because it's like, as we, she's like raised by loving, like these two loving women, you know? And like, she talks even in a certain comic about her being like, well, I wonder if my moms could have gotten married, if that would have made a difference for them and things like that. So you, no. I know. Oh my gosh. I know. That's like, ooh, tears. Uh, seriously. No, I wept. <laughs> so like, I think of her intimacy issues, how that relates to like where she was raised, how it relates to her powers and how much of it is her really just trying to protect herself from the outside world because she immediately associates touch with something that's harmful in her young years, you know? And I think that a lot of people who have gone through abuse and things like that can certainly empathize with somebody who has to, like, instead of viewing touch as being a comforting and loving thing, they see it as something that is harmful and it makes you not feel good. And so I think that for Rogue, it brings on all of this guilt association as well that I think a lot of people who have like survived abuse and trauma have certainly had to come to grips with. So all well, of I that think building stuff. Building on that, Sarah, also there's this, you know, I, I, Sarah and I talk about abuse a lot because we've lived through a lot of it. it. There's this cycles of abuse, right? And so I think that even as being a survivor, there can be a fear of like, am I a perpetrator waiting? Right. And I think that Rogue really captures that. Rogue captures this sort of fear of self and this incredible responsibility to to understand that she's been hurt by touch, she's hurt with touch, and she doesn't want to do that anymore. Um, so I think it's interesting to think about her as like, yes, there's it makes sense that she'd be fearful in some ways of her powers, and how much of that is like a misogynistic overtone of like, women can't be trusted with power. Yeah. Right. But that point that you bring up is so interesting because I've never, not that I've never thought about it, but it illuminates so much more that idea of you've endured abuse and you can intellectualize that statistically, right? That that puts you at a greater risk for them perpetrating that abuse. And then how you as a person then try to do things to control that, but then how that can stunt your own sort of growth in life as as a person in the world. That's fascinating. Totally. The idea that that like you have a monster inside and if you're not very, very careful and if you're not constantly vigilant and if you're not constantly checking that monster, it could come out. Is that true? I don't know. You know, like in my own healing process, I've learned that like I'm not the people who hurt me and I'm not going to hurt people because I've chosen to be a different person because I've gone to therapy because I've done all this restorative work for myself. But like, yeah, I'm afraid of that sometimes. Like when my temper flares and I'm like, oh God, like could I, could I do what has been done to me to someone else? Like I don't think so, but fuck, it's like terrifying. And I just had never connected that with Rogue, but I, I really, I think this reading of her really resonates for me at least. All right, so let's let's kick it back uh, to DC for a minute. Um, Vixen, I really like Vixen. Uh, yeah. She's, okay, so- Vixen's super cool because, like, she has her powers given to her by, like, the Yoruba uh, god, like, Anasi, which is, which is so freaking cool, mostly because, like, Em and I know who Anasi is because it's, like, I'm Jamaican and so I grew up on those stories and you're Haitian and I know that those stories sort of, like, travel throughout the Caribbean just in general. Yeah, Em, am I right? Yes, absolutely. 
So she gets a Anasi, and Anasi is like a trickster god, and Yoruban trickster god. But that's where she derives her powers from. And I just, I think it's so cool. I, I just like stories where like they legitimately weave in. I think ancient African mythology because it's just not something a lot of people do. Right, um, it's like so nice not to be talking about like a white pantheon. You know, it's yeah, it's like I mean, I love Zeus, Athena, and the kids. They're fun. Um, <laughs> I enjoy them. I enjoy Ra and. Isis as well, but uh, it'd be cool to hear from Yamaya and Oya and um, those those kids as well. They, and, uh, and the thus. House of Whispers series has been playing with a lot of those gods. Just for like a note for future reference, uh, if you haven't read it, it's brilliant. I'm well. Thank you. Thank you for the rec. I'm going to get into that. Um, and then I don't know. Have you read the Tomi uh, Oriemi books, uh, Child of Blood and Bone? Oh yes, I have read that one. It's it's brilliant. It's fucking brilliant, but does a really cool job blending existing mythology with like created mythologies around the same pantheon. No, that's legit. I no, I love it because I I'd heard about Children of Blood and Bone, but I hadn't gotten into it yet. So like that's I'll bump that up to the top of my list. But Vixen gets her powers from Anasi, and sh- her whole thing is that like she has like a totem that. She can just get, like, animal-like abilities. And she can talk to the animals. I don't know how I feel about the talking to the animals part. Mostly because, like, talking animals and talking to animals is like a... It's not that I don't get it. I just... I've never been particularly moved by it. (laughs) But really, I would just like to see, like, an expansion of the powers. Because I think when she, like, rubs a totem, it's always, like, a cheetah. It's just sort of like the... I think it runs the... um, And this is also sort of my beef with Storm, too. Is like, I think they're just not thinking in terms of like what they could really do with her powers it'd be cool for her to give like she could like climb walls like a spider because like i mean she did get her powers from a spider trickster god uh that would be cool i think there's just there's more room for people to like just think more and like to let her do more but she's cool i really like her i I think there's like two really cool versions of her that i've seen one is actually in Legends of Tomorrow, the TV show. She comes in for a while. And um, it, you have to kind of suspend disbelief around, like, time time travel and, like, this person's an elder in her community. Like, why the fuck would she go on this time ship? You have to kind of be like, okay, fine. She can go back to the moment she left, so fine. It doesn't matter. Her powers are so cool. And the way that she puts them on, the actor has such a physical presence. And she does such an incredible job making herself gorilla-like or lion-like or rhino like, um, which like is kind of hard to imagine. But and then the CGs, I think, really nice. I don't know how you feel about it, Sarah. I think it's great. I mean, Vixen is one of those characters that really gets. I mean, you know, here we are talking about her. Uh, she gets really underserved a lot. Yeah, but she's a complicated figure, and it's very interesting to me because I think that you know when we talk about like a lot of the conversations that we've had that are about like well, what's the difference between how, like, white women superheroes function in the world? And it's like, well, because Vixen does things that she feels like she needs to do, and she gets, like, villainized for them a lot, like, by other superheroes. So it's like, she ends up in Suicide Squad and stuff like that, and you're just like, 
I mean, <laughs> like, Wonder Woman, like, straight up broke a dude's neck, like, on live television one time. So, like, <laughs> um, it's like so but, Vixen's like, so Vixen's the one. What? Okay, got it. Yeah. <laughs> so, to me, it's, like, that's really interesting. And I love her knowledge, to me, is very interesting. Because this is not somebody that anybody ever gets the drop on, ever. Mm-hmm. So, like, she can call stuff. And that, like, you know, whatever, she's just super hyper-aware or whatever because of her powers. But to me, it's it's very uh, organic with her that she's just this person that you will never fool. Right. I do. Same. I like that about her, that she... Something I'm really interested in and in really in trying to think more of and trying to be better about is thinking about characters in a way of when we talk about people are smart or people are intelligence, making sure that that's just not like one type of intelligence. Right. Mm. Um, mm. And to really value people for for the type of intelligence that, that they bring or mm-hmm. have. And Vixen is one of those people. She's she's orphaned right when she Mm -hmm. comes and when she comes to to the u.s but like you said she's she's very intuitive um Mm -hmm. she gets things and i like that about her i think particularly i think around black women and i get it like i i totally get it why there's a there's this desire to always make sure that for black female characters that you know she's gone to college and gone to Harvard (laughs) and like Mm -hmm. is like the smartest among them. And like, I understand that. Trust me, I get it because like when you're devalued in the way that black women are devalued, like you, the instinct is to get all the things to prove that you are the most important. Right. But I also think it's important that we not, you know, to always sort of just be aware that we're not like reinforcing sort of respectability politics. Um, And I like that. And I, and that's, just part of the reason why I like Vixen. Like, she's she's emotionally intelligent. She's intuitive in, in that way. That's where Specifically, her, yeah. Very specifically, that's where her power is derived. She finds success as, like, a model, which is, like, yeah. Um, yeah. And, <laughs> duh. And I like that. And she's great. I just, I wish there was just more for her. She's pretty cool. Yeah, she's also in uh, the Bombshells run, which, if y'all right. haven't read it, Sarah's whole thing is always like it's bisexual the comic and she's right that's exactly what it's like it's all the DC female heroes dressed as like Bettys from World War II it has some World War II stuff which we're both like "Eh, fine I mean it is set in World War II it is World War II stuff I just think that like Vixen is such a exciting character and has so much potential and in Bombshells there's such a cool version of her she's you know doing her thing, and then hot girl is, like, her girlfriend slash, like, vizier. But, like, every panel, she makes up a new title for herself. It's adorable. And it's just, like, so effortless. And you see Vixen in her, like, I am a powerful woman in charge of the world. I sit on my throne, and I get dirty when I need to, but I'm never going to let you forget that I am Vixen. And it's like, oh, oh, amazing. (laughs) <laughs> Again, that's step on my neck, please. You know that's what's up. That's what's up. Okay, who's next? Well, the, this last character was also on Alex's list, but oh. um, let me talk about my ignorance for a minute. I said to Alex, <laughs> "quote I'm not really familiar with Vixen and Power Girl, but the truth is, I didn't know this character's name was Power Girl because I just been calling her Superman's cousin all this time." <laughs> <laughs> 
Which is you technically know, Superman's cousin. Correct. It's just technically correct. <laughs> but like, I'm the main one who's always like, we need to define women outside of their relationship to a man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Power Girl. I'm so sorry, girl. But yeah, I love it. And with that, Power Girl. (laughs) Yes. So Power Girl's whole joint is like, um, she's like from a multiverse. And then she gets pulled into like the main Earth. But like, there's already Supergirl in the main Earth. So it's like, what do I do now? And that's really why I like Power Girl. Um, I like Power Girl, I think, for the same reason. For ultimately the same reasons like we talked about when we just talked about rogue is like it's what an interesting way to talk about like identity and what does your identity mean and like when someone is technically like has your place like well how do you define yourself Mm. um unfortunately she's been drawn in like a very sexist way (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, Um, she needs the boob window for flying oh my right we all agree that's why it's there I mean, at this point, it's one of those things where it's like, just let her keep it. She's just expressing herself. I've heard that memory until she needs to breathe. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) there is actually a story, and it is, to me, like, really funny, but it is definitely sexist, where, like, uh, Power Girl is talking about, like, why the boob window exists. And so it's because, like, she doesn't have a home. She doesn't have a name. Like, that's where the Superman symbol used to be. And now there's nothing there because she has nothing. And, like, I mean, I get it. But to me, it was just really funny that she's, like, in tears being like, I have to have the boob window. Nobody cares about me. <laughs> Just like, what is happening in this comic? Like, to me, that was just really funny. But the truth is, she just wanted to wear less and go out more. Yeah, I mean, great. She could go, Power Girl. She can wear what she wants, and that was like, I mean, to me, that's like when dudes are just like, I'm gonna write this character more feminist. I'm gonna have her in tears about her boob window. It's like, that's, um, oh gosh, well, please sit down, sir, but. (laughs) Thank you for informing us of why women wear clothing. Right. But like, yeah, which is like, yeah, it's (laughs) the point is, it's like, the point is, is that I think Power Girl is ripe for like a a Jessica Jones type treatment um, in film and in in a, in a live action film sense. Um, She has all the elements, I think, to really make that work. And and like I said, I like her for that reason. Yeah, what else mm-hmm. is it that draws you to her? You know, I think just as somebody who spent a lot of, like, my early life, like, comparing myself to, like, other people mm-hmm. and kind of always sort of having a real, like, anxiety about, okay, like, I do this thing really well, but, like, there's somebody else out there or there's somebody else who's very similar to me that does the same things that I do well. They do it well, too. So what value do I have? And mm-hmm. and sort of having that crisis, particularly like as an artist, that was <laughs> that was a, a deep crisis of mine. It still is sometimes when I let those ugly thoughts come in. So I, right. I always connected with her, like in that sense of like really feeling lost and and sort of being like, shit, like do I matter? Like or like what do I do now? Um, mm. And also that it, in some ways, it doesn't matter what she does, right? Like, she, she's always going to be what she is. She's always going to be somebody who is completely isolated from the world around her. There's already a Supergirl. Like, there's some things that she can negotiate, and then there's some things that are just truth. And her having to come into power with that truth has been part of her story. But I'm in agreement that I just don't think it's been touched on enough. 
Right. It's just basically I that's why she's underutilized. It's like if they could get past the sexism, there's a lot there for her. Lots of ideas about just identity and, and self and that could really do something, could be something. But they don't even want to make her gay. <laughs> it's like like and I, I want all those things that you guys want, but I'm like, if we're still in a situation where all of these queer characters are being straight washed, I have so little hope that we're going to delve more deeply into their thought processes and like you know, um, their identities right. and their mental health because, like, you you won't even give her her lesbian girlfriend, like... Right, right. Yeah, like, they're not willing to even go past, like, a surface value situation. <laughs> so you're just like, hey, so can we find out about, like, Power Girl besides her, like, weeping about her <laughs> boob window or whatever? And, like... Okay. They're Only just like, no. the Joker gets that kind of treatment, friends. Right. We do not have time <sighs> to be treating women like people. <laughs> we are, we are very sorry. busy. <laughs> I just... I felt that sigh so hard. It's just... <laughs> oh, if I never... If I never, <laughs> never... Um, uh, well, let me see if I can do it. Mm, I hate it. Mm, I hate it. Uh, <laughs> and, and then also, there's also... Power Girl interacts with, like, cool people. There's a story where she um, she interacts with, like, the Crimson Avenger, who I, like... Yes. I know has, like, never... <laughs> Nobody even talks about the Crimson Avenger. Totally. But Crimson Avenger is also pretty cool. And like that, I think there's there's actually stuff that you can bend. Um, I think what's so great about comics and what I love about the the comic book adaptations and the live action stuff um, in this moment that we're in is that essentially you can do anything with these characters. Um, there's so much story and arcs and stuff to pull from to create uh, something else. Uh, to look at and to think about and with these quote-unquote like more minor characters it's it's especially ripe right because and i hate to say power girl like a minor character but she's sort of this um because (laughs) she's written major in our hearts major in our hearts the pages um there's a lot you're you can do whatever you want with her in terms of story because people aren't gonna have an attachment for power girl like they have an attachment for captain america or for uh monica rambo although yeah, I have a very deep attachment to Monica Rambo. Um, Same. Me too. Oh. Like, I'm like, what do you mean Monica Rambo is not a BFD? Monica Rambo is a major BFD. <laughs> major BFD. Like, um, don't even talk about my girl Monica. Um, <laughs> and, or, you know, Batman. Like, no one's gonna, like, have all this, like, around, you know, power girl like they have around Batman. and that, And you can use that with these sort of other characters to tell, like, really cool, really interesting stories. And I guess that's that's, why... Oh, yeah, I was just going to say, that's happened with men characters that were minor. Like, they've gotten fleshed out. Yeah, so I would say, isn't that essentially the case with, like, uh, Iron Man and Daredevil, at least? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Yeah, those were always, like, bottom sellers, and then, you know, movies happened, so... Aquaman got a movie, anything's possible. Totally. (laughs) That is so rude. (laughs) I I the movie. (laughs) I mean, if Aquaman looks like Jason Momoa, I'm a fan. That's the <laughs> I might be the only woman on Earth character. who does not think that he's attractive. You'll be forgiven this once. <laughs> SC, I really appreciate like you for the people and like your consistent thirst of like oh, God, everyone. Yeah. Like you're really oh, yeah. just holding it down for all of us, and I I appreciate that. That's that's I'm real. Like, I'm like the thirstiest mofo on the planet. I didn't realize that was what was happening as a kid. <laughs> like, I would be <laughs> so obsessed. Like, when I first saw the X-Men movies, 
I had a spiritual experience around Wolverine. Like I was like, what is happening inside of me? (laughs) And then I realized, oh, I'm just like super queer and apparently very horny. (laughs) It's real. It's real. It's real life. I love it. But if Aquaman gets a sequel before Storm gets her movie, we ride at dawn. Seriously. (laughs) Done. I'm done. I'm done with it. Done with it. Done with you. Done with this. Um, (laughs) Done with all of it. Uh, And I want it. I mean, gosh, like, come on. Um, Like, I think that Storm, I know we've already talked about it. I'm coming back. I think that Storm also is one of the characters who I frequently hear men saying are their favorite character, is their favorite character, which like I don't ever hear men saying a female character is their favorite character ever. Really? And, and I hear white men say that about Storm. That's wild. And I'm like, I, I really, because I think of her so much as like a, a sort of underdog's person. And I think maybe these people are also underdogs. I don't know. Uh, but it, it thinks, to me, it's like, you can make so much money. Like just make a Storm independent, like or on our own story. And people will see it. People will want to see it so, so bad. I've had the same experience. Storm is the only woman I've ever heard any of the comic book dude bros say is their favorite ever. Same. Which is why I don't get it. I don't, I, I truly don't get it. I just was like, do you hate money? Like, I know you don't hate money. Like, so what What else? Um, she is just that, she's that girl. And she's so cool. She's just, yeah. she does so much cool stuff. Like, oh my gosh, I love it. Like, so name more like Decimates Wakanda. And then yeah. um, T'Challa's like, you weren't here. And she was like, uh, I do things. Um, yeah. <laughs> I work. I cannot like. I thought you had this. Like, I'm a fucking Avenger. Like, I'm a, the whole planet's mine. Right. Like, and she, and then like, and and it's that, and it's the fact that like all the Avengers like low key like geek out. Like, she is the Beyonce of like Marvel. All the other Avengers like geek out when they see her. They'd be like, oh, like is Storm coming. Like, is she is she coming? <laughs> like, yo, like that's what it is. I they're like, I you know, I'm not available. I I don't have any time this Friday. They're like, oh, I heard Storm's gonna be there. You know what? I cleared my schedule. But I, exactly. I will but be I cleared there. my schedule. I'm here. <laughs> Um, right, like any person would just like do whatever they could to finagle themselves to that side of the room. Like, <laughs> there's no way storms in the room. It doesn't matter. You have like a room full of like colorful superheroes, and then you're just like, oh, but storm is here, and so I need to just like move my body closer to that <laughs> part of the <laughs> to room. The part of the room. <laughs> yeah. I just want to overhear what she's saying, maybe, like, you know, just, like, try to be respectfully close to Storm at all times. <laughs> um, it's my, once again, my hopes and dreams. Not that you care. Um, <laughs> but there's, like, a scene in my head that, like, <laughs> I've written. I always, like, just imagine, like, Storm sort of, like, in the room and, like, she's talking to somebody and she's nodding her head. And then, like, Thor comes over to shoot his shot and he's like, you know, you're a god. I'm a god. We're like doing this god thing. Like, so. And then she's just sort of looking at him like, what are you talking about? Like, yeah, he's I like, just, imagine what we could do to the skies. And like, she's like, Psh. Oh. Like, I know she's like, oh, why are you talking? This is so awkward. Cringy. Okay. Then Tessa Thompson Valkyrie comes up and is like, oh, hey, girl. And done. Right, exactly. But then Power Girl rolls through and she's like, uh, Valkyrie, I've waited all my life for a woman like you. You get me. I get you. Let's be together. 
throuple. This, I love it. This I is the greatest that. fan fiction I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad I found other people who like can nerd out like this with. This is Yay. so nice. <laughs> it's so yeah. good. Um, but yeah, I I love her. That's it. She's she's who I want. I'm really interested in um her and like Jean. Like you said, they have a very complicated friendship. It's so good. I love those two as friends because out of all of the shit that goes down in both of their lives, they never are terse with each other. Even in the very beginning, the first time I remember seeing Storm and Jean interact, they're going to the mall and she's with Cyclops and Storm. And she's just like, you two brood a lot. Like you two are like very serious. And Storm like starts to like crack a smile. And to me, that's like, that's so beautiful. That's like, oh my God. Like she cheers up because of Jean and then like vice versa. You see like Jean in her worst moments and stuff like that. Storm is brainwashed at a certain point and everybody's like, we're going to have to take Storm out or like she's going to kill a lot of people. And Jean Grey's response to that is like, well, then a lot of people are going to die because you're not going to touch Storm. And like, to me, that was just like, oh, damn, (laughs) like Jean will sacrifice literally anything for Storm. And so like, I love everything about that friendship is to me just like perfect. Same. And it's and I guess I'm interested in it because I'm a big believer that TV and movies can teach you how to act. Yeah. Um, not every one of them should, um, but right. I think it's valuable to write properties sometimes where they do. And I definitely think that that friendship can, because I know like white women, black women friendships are like hard and mm-hmm. <laughs> like yeah. they can be really, really hard. But yeah. I definitely think that like you could use that one as like an example of like, this is how we should we should like have each other's backs like for real like as a sisterhood like that should be something we do for sure and i'm just wondering outside of captain marvel can you really think of any on-screen female friendships between superheroes i you really can't i mean in captain marvel's not with another superhero she's with maria rambo but i'm trying to think about it um i mean we have our aforementioned gal pals but like (laughs) you mean like platonic right yeah. Okay. Any, yeah, I can't think of any platonic ones. <laughs> and I think that that's again like what pisses me off so much about this is, I think people fundamentally misunderstand what feminism is. They're like, ah, oh, woman is in this feminism track, and it's like that's not how that works. Like, feminism <sighs> is about women working together, women and, and other gender minorities working together to make equality happen and I don't see that in in these I do see it in the comics depending on the comic depending on the depiction depending on if it's a DC Marvel or what year it's from but I don't really see that in any of the movies that I can recall in the comics the character that to me for like the whole Avengers side of the universe and even into the X-Men a little bit Janet Van Dyne she's like the female friend who like goes out and is like what's up new friends like And She-Hulk is, like, to me, one, too, that does that a lot, where she's just, like, there for, like, all of the women on the team. Whenever Monica Rambeau was leader of the Avengers and that guy, Dr. Druid, was trying to gaslight her, She-Hulk was the one who was just, like, you all shut up. Like, Monica's the leader. You listen to her. And, like, to me, that was just, like, yes, (laughs) She-Hulk is the best. Monica's the best. I mean, you Um, have—I can't think of the comics, but, like, I mean, at least on, like, in film, though, like, on screen— because so, I was thinking about it now, really, really going through, and it's literally just Nakia and Okoye, and even that is like right. They're they're not technic- they're heroes, but like they're just um 
well, Nakia is defected, right, from Wakanda's, like, royal force, and Okoye is the top general, even though they're not necessarily, like, super-powered. And right. yet, they're, and they're still, still their stories revolve around the male character, right? Like, they get to be, secondarily, their friendship means something. And, and I might even say that's this way bad. Like, I like Black Panther, and I thought the film was wonderful. But yeah, it just bums me out, you know? I'm like, to me, what made me a better person was my friendships with other people who are gender minorities. And it helped me also see the ways in which I wasn't living my life to my truth. At some point, Roxane Gay wrote this really incredible essay about not trying to be the special girl. And I think it really changed my feminism. And she talked a lot about how the importance of female friendships and the importance of being friends with people and not having any competition there and not caring what men think of you or your friendships. Mm -hmm. And I don't see that reflected in in these depictions. And I'm hoping that's yet. I mean, I guess Jessica Jones would be an example on screen. Uh, Jessica Jones and, and, and uh, Trish Walker, right? Like their friendship is really important. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, that show has lots of issues. Problems. That's not oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but that one. Yeah. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. I mean, I have not signed up for Disney Plus yet because I refuse, um, but... Same. I wonder in these Disney Plus... Because I remember thinking, at least... I can understand, like, the big tentpole movies, they're like, forget you with the female friendships. But I was hoping that at least in like these smaller properties that like came on Netflix and came on and I guess are now it's now going to be Disney Plus, you could do that, right? Because there's not as much risk or there's not oh. as much needing it to be perfect. Yeah, uh She-Hulk for that they're going to do a She-Hulk TV series and all I can say is is that every She-Hulk comic series where She-Hulk isn't surrounded by female friendships is terrible. terrible. And then there's one where she is surrounded by women. She like hires Pazzy Walker, like Hellcat to work for her <laughs> at her law firm as like a bodyguard and that's they get hilarious. get really fucking drunk and then they beat up. Yeah. Like 
some random scientist on the bad guy's side, not like random in the world, but like not yeah. a head honcho in the bad guy's side. It's and so for no sweet. reason, it's AIM so is just like, what are you doing here? Why are you hitting us? <laughs> like, we didn't do anything, right? Did we do something? Um, and yeah, so to me, like, if you bring in a She-Hulk series and you don't focus on She-Hulk's female friendships, then you're going to end up with a bunch of bullshit that's just like revolving her around like the dudes, which happened again and again with that character. So I hope to God like that they have strong female friendships on that show. Let's pray. Did you all have other characters you wanted to talk about? No. I think we went through everyone on our list. Um, that was inc- I mean, it was incredible. Uh, yeah, I, I think we went through everybody. Yeah. yeah, we did, we did, we did. Sarah, is there anyone you want to add? Oh, Janet Van Dyne, the Wasp, oh. like I was just saying. Um, the original I think that, Wasp, right? Like, not the one who's in the movie. Well, in the movie, but in the second movie as, like, Michelle Pfeiffer. Oh, um, right, 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 right. In the comic, she is uh, age equivalent to all of the other Avengers. Like, she's, you know, a peer, I guess. So, um in the comics, Janet Van Dyne was the leader of the Avengers for a super long time. She's the person who was the leader of the Avengers before Monica Rambeau. And she's the person who was like, no, Monica has to be the leader now. And like Monica uh, obviously is like the best leader. Um, but before that, she had this kind of weird arc where uh, she had this abusive relationship. Her and like Hank Pym had this like kind of terrible, tumultuous thing. And then she divorces Hank Pym and she shows up and everybody's like the other Avengers, like Thor, Captain America, Iron Man. They're all sitting at the table and they're like, yeah, she's probably going to have to take a leave of absence, huh? Like she's probably like really emotional right now. And so Janet comes in and is just like, so uh, if we're electing a new leader, I think it should be me. And so <laughs> it like completely like floors everybody. And they're just like, oh, um, and she's like, oh, do you have any objections? Just say yes or no. I'd like to know. And like everybody's like, no, um, yeah, you can be leader. So she like <laughs> kind of like strong arms her way into like leadership of the Avengers, like literally the day that she got divorced. <laughs> and so like she's a badass. And so she when she goes forward, it's like her and Captain America have kind of co-leadership of the team. Very interesting dynamic between those two because he has to like take a step back which he's not used to doing and she doesn't pay attention because she doesn't care she's like so we're gonna go into space and we're gonna fight some villains all right cool and just kind of always has this like buoyant attitude where she's like doesn't pay attention to like terrible things that are happening around her which i love then later she's always dressed to the nines right like oh my god she's a fashion designer she starts her own corporation as a fashion designer And then later, whenever it's time for her to pass on the leadership of the Avengers, Thor is like, well, you know, I could do leadership. And she's like, no, it's Monica. Like, Monica Rambeau is going to be the leader. Monica is, like, so thrilled. And so you get to see a really good dynamic and friendship between those two. And, uh, yeah, basically Janet Van Dyne's one of the most underrated characters in comics to me because, like, as I say, she goes, like, around and really makes the effort to be a good friend to all of the women because she's like, she's also kind of like a thirsty character, right? Like she's always like flirting with the dudes and everything. And I think a lot of the times when we have a character like that, then you have like, oh, now she like hates all the other women and like, here's all their rivalries. And Janet is like the exact opposite of that. That's an interesting character. I need to get into her. I I don't really know anything about this character, but now I am intrigued. My interest is peaked. 
Yeah, well, it, in Ant-Man and the Wasp, uh, she does appear, obviously, as, like, Michelle Pfeiffer, but which is a different take on the character. But that, like, that genuine sense of, like, warmth and just focusing on the job and being really buoyant while she does it. And just, like, that character to me, even though she's in the film, like, less than 10 minutes or something, it's, like, she's exactly the kind of character who you'd be like, oh, cool, what are we doing? Like, I want to hang out with you all of the time. So, like, <laughs> that, to me, was communicated really well, even though. So, you know, she had like basically no role. I love that you described her as buoyant. That's absolutely how I see Janet Van Dyne is like buoyant in every sense. And like, I love her wings. They're like so pretty. Like, yeah, uh, I love her. I love how uh, when she talks to the X-Men, like Havoc is like, yeah, well, mutants have bad things that happen to us all the time. And she's like, in the future, I'm a Deathlock robot. It's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) It's like everything, like Havoc keeps trying to be like, no, mutants have it the worst. And she's like, can you believe that my husband is like... Hank Pym like that was nuts and like totally just like matches him on every level and she's like you know what you X-Men are kind of depressing (laughs) G2G yeah flies away I love it yes to me she's like one of the greats and those are all of the reasons thank you for introducing me to a new character this has been so cool yeah if I was going to choose an underrated character, it's a character that we all know very well, but it's a specific version of that character. So I really love gender-fluid Loki. I think that Loki gets played so often as like this shitty adopted child. I was adopted, so I take offense at that. Um, and, and you know, was lied to, manipulated, sort of justified. Oh, and then instead of actually having to deal with the fact that, you know, he murders a lot of people, it's like, oh. I got a reset because I stole the fucking Infinity Stone. The end. And now I was going to have his, like, TV show. Loki I'm not particularly into that. (laughs) Uh, I don't like the the treatment of Loki as, like, this waiting-to-be-evil character. I think that the comics also did that absolutely. Lots of representations of Loki went that way. And then there was a run, starting with the Young Avengers, where Loki got to come back. Essentially, Loki removed, and I'm going to use there because I'm talking about gender-fluid Loki. They removed their name from the roles of hell, uh, H-E-L, like hell is hell. And so cannot stay dead. Just can't happen. So Loki is killed. Loki the adult, Loki the similar to the one that we see with Tom Hiddleston playing, and then goes to hell temporarily and is like, LOL, remember I'm a trickster, gotta go, and leaves and is like, reborn is this, adorable I think 13 year old who has a crush on this other boy on the young Avengers and they kiss and it's so cute and then goes on their own story and partway through the story Loki really starts to be comfortable with their gender fluidity and is transitioning panel to panel between more masculine and more feminine role appearances and really starts to talk about, you know, people think of me as the god of lies, but the god of lies is also the goddess of stories. And I am here to help people find their truth as much as I am able to thwart it. And it ends up being a really interesting philosophical conversation, I think, about the gender binary, too, that we think of people as these either or. And Loki's like, no, 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 it's both and and neither. And that's really cool. And I just I think that it could be really amazing. And the timing's so good, given 
what's happening. I don't think this is about to happen. But it would be incredible to, instead of having another Tom Hiddleston Loki, they could have Nico Tortorella play Loki. They could have so many other people who could do a great job. I mean, I would love to see Janelle Monet play a Loki. Like, that could be so cool. Uh, but yeah, I think that that character is super underutilized. But I think a lot of people like me who are non-binary or genderqueer, genderfluid, really hold on to that from the comics because it was such, it was short-lived but very potent. The story of Loki starting to learn about what it means to be all of themselves, not just the version that Odin thought was okay or that the Frost Giants thought was good or that Thor doesn't want to kill, you know, really being about Loki's journey with themselves. And they, they have that journey by making friends with a human woman. And it's so sweet. I don't expect it to show up on screen at any point, but it could be really, really incredible. Um, you're blowing my mind right now because you, that makes Loki as gender fluid makes so much sense. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah. Even in the Tom Hiddleston portrayal, I'm like, oh, yeah. It's not. I mean, that hair. I mean, mm. the hair, the outfit, the the speech pattern. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, I see it. It's, oh, oh my gosh. Like, my mind is so blown because I'm like, oh, my goodness, you're so right. <laughs> seriously though and it, it like they only make sense that way right once you see it you're yeah. kind of just like wait I'm sorry where did uh, we had a kind of a similar conversation about Swamp Thing where we were just like once you kind of go wait why why do we refer to Swamp Thing as he when <laughs> like there's no reason for us to do that and a big part of their arc is to move away from that terminology I think mm-hmm. a lot and like those binaries so to me it's just like that's how it always feels with Loki too so if I call Loki him it's like huh is that really the word I even want to use with this character because they're both and I think that lots of people who are non-binary gender fluid use she and he so I think it always becomes like kind of tricky because Loki does use she when Loki is in a more feminine form and uses she when in a more masculine form but then when you're trying to refer to like the totality of the being who does both it can be challenging I think that's why you know it's nice to have comic book characters to talk about and TV characters talk about who are these these things because when we talk about gender fluidity non-binary identities all that it's so much less hurtful to make mistakes about someone fictional so I think that Mm. it can be really helpful and obviously we know representation matters but also like Loki's so sexy like female Loki or like the more feminine Loki there's also a version of Loki called Lady Loki you know, like, so the spelt and, like, loving the horns, and suddenly the horns take on this, like, I don't know, like, Medusa almost effect. It's, like, really, really cool. I'm just, I'm just meditating, because I'm like, oh, yes. (laughs) My, I just, I feel like you passed down, like, the, the, the Moses tablets to me. I feel so, (laughs) like, I just have new knowledge. (laughs) I really like that, and that's my favorite thing in, in the world. (laughs) Like, I love, I love it. You just hit my spot. Like, that's that's it. I love it. My heart is so happy. <laughs> this has been so fun. <laughs> yes. Um, I'm like, why is our podcast it. always together? <laughs> oh, I had <laughs> such a fun time. Oh, yeah. I just wanted to say really quickly, this, this uh, everything you've been saying about Loki reminds me of a post that I retweeted on the GBB page last night. So the original oh. post is four pictures, and the pictures are of Billie Eilish, Little Nas X, Ariana Grande and um, Billy Porter at the Grammys. And he asked, why does everyone look like a new Batman villain? And this woman quote tweeted him and said, because you're used to villains being queer coded. 
Yes, I totally saw that tweet. I might have retweeted it too. Um, I might have retweeted your retweet. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I was, yeah, that was one that really blew me away too, where I was just like, I, I know this for theory, but then also when you see it just like so obviously confirmed sometimes, you're just like, oh, wow. Even though I've like based my life on this study of like queer stuff, then you're just, it still blows you away sometimes, I think, to see and, and, and what our role is now today as people who've inherited these properties, right, that are that are sexist, that are ableist, that are racist, homophobic, what have you, how do we then grapple with the villainization of, of queerness and queer codedness? And I think that that's what Loki gives us is this this total entree point to see the, how one creator or a team of creators, I should say, really grapple with that question when you can't erase what Loki did in the past because Loki was created by someone else to to do something else and I think yeah I'm like fast I'm like what are we gonna do what's like our generation of people's like or our different generations going to create that that is queer coded or isn't queer coded and are we gonna have lots of villains who get to be gay and evil or are we gonna you know not have that are we gonna I don't know I think it's exciting same. It is. It's, it's, it's exciting more than anything. Well, thank yeah. you so much for being here with us today. The Good, the Bad, the Basic pod featuring Alex and M. They go all in on your favorite pop culture properties. It is hysterical. It's also really fun if you're doing like a rewatch. I'm currently rewatching Buffy and listening to their episodes about Buffy section by section, season by season. So highly recommend it. We'll definitely have their social media contact in the notes below and we'll be promoting their stuff on Twitter. Make sure you follow them there at, at Good Bad Basic Pod. And thank you so much for your time, everyone. Thank you. It was a pleasure thank to be here. Thank you for having us. This week's comic of the week is March. Written by John Lewis and Andrew Aiden. Art by Nate Powell. How is this the first time Nate Powell has ever come into my life? Because the art is unbelievable. This art blows me away every single page of this book. And it's all in grayscale. And it is that's, it so wouldn't work otherwise, I don't think. I think that that's one of the things that's so great about it is it's beautiful grayscale, right? Yeah, and it's so vivid. Like, when I remember March, I don't remember it in black and white. And then, because this is a, not the first time I've read it, I actually a friend bought it for me when I was first getting into comic books and was like, you know, you you care about social justice, you will love this. And I was like, you are correct, I do love this. And yeah, I remember it as being in color, partially because the cover is beautifully colored, just fantastic oranges yes. and, and reds, and which is true both in and on the cover, the facial expressions. Mm -hmm. To me, I am like, Nate Powell, you should draw everyone's faces. You are incredible. Yeah, the expressiveness is incredible. All of the ways that you kind of just see the world be developed. It's kind of a sketchy style. There's a lot of lines. 
And it's just beautiful. You can tell some of the scenes that, you know, some artists use rulers, some don't. I love looking at the tile and seeing it be a little bit uneven because I enjoy that. I always enjoy the little idiosyncrasies of people's art. And I think that Powell's work is full of it in the absolute best way because it never looks off. It's always 100% on. It's always exactly what he wants it to be. There's so much to talk about with this book, but I just want to get the art out of the way right in the very beginning because it is just breathtaking. Absolutely. I, I completely agree. I think also the way that onomatopoeias are illustrated into it, where you see the words, but they're like in like shaded special ways. It's just the art, a story with so much gravity, it carries so well. And the art is is serious and thoughtful. And again, the facial expressions, it's like, oh my gosh, you feel like you're seeing these experiences on the faces of the people you get to see. I also love, it's just like a detail that, mm, it's like my kind of jam. There's often sound happening and it'll be kind of relevant to the story or it'll be like in the background, the radio is on. And what's great about it is it's, you know, scribbles. But if you look closely, the first couple of words are written out in like this very light font and you can actually read like what it is. So there's a part where Martin Luther King Jr. is giving a speech and you get like sort of the first couple of lines of it. And then it goes into the scribbles because it's, you know, partially about John Lewis's, I mean, it's entirely about John Lewis's experience. But those kind of details make it such a rich world. And I think sometimes in comics that aren't superhero comics, I should say, we don't think about sound and sound plays such a big role in this. I think a lot about like, do the story and art have to be together? And I think in a lot of autobiographies that end up being illustrated, that's not necessarily true. But in this case, I can't imagine reading this memoir in a different way. It belongs with this art. This story needs somebody who can meet the story on every front. Everything that happens in this story, there's so much nuance. There's so much just incredible storytelling that has to have an artist who is fully, fully capable of meeting it at every place. And so, art, great. So, do you want to talk about John Lewis a little bit? It's the story of Congressman John Lewis's life. It is told through a series of flashbacks. A couple of young children are with their mom and they stop by John Lewis's office, not expecting him to be there. And he was there. It is the day of Barack Obama's inauguration. And these kids are like, what, John Lewis? And their mom is more excited because children you know, don't always know who John Lewis is. And they have this wonderful conversation. He's like, oh, let me tell you about my life. And you get this real sense for what a generous and warm person Congressman Lewis is. And he's very well known for that to be the fact. And it's just so great to see it told this way and through this lens. So then we get to go through his early childhood and how he came to his social awareness and how he grew up and his love of his chickens. He used to preach to his chickens. The chickens chickens thing. Oh, my God. Oh. That whole part of the story, dear God, the most relatable thing in the world when you are attaching to these animals and just having that interaction such a beautiful story. It's so sweet. And yeah, again, Lewis is just like wants to learn so bad and like ditches chores to like go get on this school bus. And it's just really tender. And aside of Congressman Lewis, I certainly didn't know before reading this. And I'm guessing most people wouldn't. 
it goes a little bit more quickly through his like middle and high school years yeah. and then gets into his college years when he wanted to enroll at a university that was for whites only. Mm-hmm. The committee he was working with, he ended up deciding not to because his parents wouldn't sign off and he needed his parents' support to challenge it. I think maybe because he was still underage. And right. then it's essentially him coming together in Nashville with the community there and changing how lunch counters work because lunch counters were for whites only. Mm-hmm. And they did a nonviolent protest that was incredible. And he walks us through the trainings they went through. And it mm-hmm. is just like, oh my God, it's details that, I don't know, the way that I learned civil rights history was not through school because I grew up in a small town. And, and they don't teach it. <laughs> they did not give a fuck about history unless it's World War II. And that was terrible. But then, you know, in college, I, I started to learn about civil rights and, and I didn't learn the kind of details that show up in this memoir. And I think that's a gift memoir can give us that other kinds of history just can't. The words they would say to each other, the, the things they would do to one another to try and break each other. And the people who just couldn't stay nonviolent in the face of that aren't treated like they're bad people. They just can't be in the movement that way. And those are just tender details that I certainly didn't know. I'm so glad that these details exist. And again, not just in writing, but in illustrated form, because you can see the grief on people's faces as they hurt one another, as the person being hurt. And then you see their resolve when they take that practice and put it into action and really start to change history. I mean, it's a really important defining point in American history, not that things have gotten all better, not that things aren't still full of problems that we need to be working actively to resolve. But this is really, this is an important part of how social justice in this country became real and where it really became obviously about civil rights, but about human decency outside of the pulpit of a couple of churches, you know? Yeah, I think also that it's a juxtaposition between the small moments and the large moments, which I think is how our lives are. You know, a lot of our personal moments are so large that they take on the same amount of headspace as what's going on in the world that day or whatever. So I think that that's kind of just how we relate to things in general. You know, humans in general relate to stories in that way. So I think that something that's very interesting about John Lewis's story here is is that we see those catastrophic moments. The story begins with these men who are protesting and they're doing it obviously nonviolent protests because all protests pretty much are nonviolent. So that's what they're doing. And then the cops come and they go to break them up and they say, we don't care what you want. We're just going to tear gas you if you don't leave. And the men bow down and start praying. And then of course the cops move in and start doing police brutality. So that as the opening, and then it goes to the Washington Monument. So those as this kind of juxtaposition, I guess, but also something that is very interconnected and very related is so chilling and profound and great. And also just that scene where his uncle's driving and he can feel him be tense the whole time. There's just moments in this where I think that one of the things that we're guilty of is we always remember those events, but we have a very hard time finding capacity for the human moments that were in that event, right? So we can be like mass shooters. We don't look at what 
that story is, who it affects, how it happens, none of that, you know, for the most part. It's just a news item that we kind of digest and move along. And some people don't digest it. But to me, that's kind of what's interesting when you're looking at those personal stories is you get all of these details that, as you say, you wouldn't get otherwise. Yeah, I I completely agree. And the other thing I want to say that I think is really powerful, it's preserved in this, that I think isn't a lot of times in, and I guess I would say like in white imaginations, is the reactions of white people. And I mean, good and bad. The white people who stood by Lewis and the committees he was working with and fought for justice and the white people who spit on them and the white people who called them horrible names and refused to serve them and, you know, treated their civil rights like they were a burden put upon the white people. And I think that that is a chance for us to look bigotry and, and the inheritance of being white in the face. It doesn't matter if I've never spit on a black person. White people have, and that's a reality black people have to live with. And I think that that's what March gives us is this really intimate portrayal that says we're all in this. Like you are as implicated in this as I am. And that is super powerful for a memoir to do, especially because it's like about this cool, famous ass person who doesn't need to like do this, but chose to in such a way that you feel both included and implicated, I think, in the narrative. Yeah, just everything about this comic ties together in all of the ways that I love. I'm a huge history buff. I know history is depressing, but I love it. And I love to be able to hear somebody tell their own story. And just to be able to tell it from beginning to where he's at today or where he was at just a few years ago. And yeah, it's just been great. It was a beautiful comic. I loved the entire series. Everything about it was fantastic and just devastating. (laughs) Totally. Just absolutely devastating. And totally required reading. Especially if you've never read a memoir that's in comic form. We don't do a ton of reviewing memoir. I think we both tend toward the fiction side. But I actually read a fair amount of memoir that's in graphic form. And I think that it can be hit or miss. I think there's some people who maybe don't know the form as well as they think they do, but it's clear that Lewis and the folks that he worked with really understood how to make this story come through in a graphic form. And like we said at the beginning, I can't picture it told a different way now. And that is not true of most memoirs I read in a graphic form. And so it's a great place to start. Your bar will be set very high, but that's not a bad thing. And I think it is absolutely worth reading. Again, it is March. Sarah, how do we support this podcast? Well, you know what I would do if I was going to support this podcast? I would get a Patreon so that I could give money to the people who put it on. For, you know, costs. Because there's a lot of cost whenever it comes to podcasting. I don't know if people know about that, except for all of the people in the audience who totally have their own podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Because we all have them these days. That's what it's like now, isn't it? Vengeance, Nevada. Story and characters by B.J. Mendelssohn. Art and letters by Piotr Sloparski. Sarah, what did you think? Oh, I loved this comic. I thought it was really fun. Yeah, it packs all of the things into a very short space. (laughs) 
totally. I loved it so much. I am a sucker for anything that has really vivid and like hidden messages in the backdrop. And I just was dying. The zombie and Landers, I was just like tears (laughs) rolling down my face because I was laughing so, so hard. I thought it was so brilliant and the world was so rich in a way that I just was into it. Totally into it. Yeah, I found it really likable. I'm trying to find my favorite spot right now, actually. I loved (laughs) the artist's cat. I was going to say the exact same thing. The kitty is so perfect. There's a scene where the cat just looks up at the protagonist very cutely with giant wide eyes and it is the most adorable thing I've ever seen obviously I am a cat person so you won me over immediately it's on it page was a three choice. or something <laughs> this girl is just kicking it with her cat and listening to David Bowie and that's pretty much the night that I have planned for myself so I loved <laughs> how it began I thought it was great the dialogue is great whenever she leaves her house Which is always hard to do. Agreed. I thought that this dialogue was so crisp. Sometimes dialogue is too transparent and and people try and communicate the way that we wish humans would. And this felt so real. Like everyone's kind of doing like a little bit of subterfuge. Everyone's like saying something adjacent to what they mean, you know, where you're like, is that it? Is that a good thing or a bad thing and it's like oh no big deal because we're people and we're dicks I totally loved it I thought it was just really brilliant I also love the way that black and white and color were used to differentiate different characters I was gonna say that yeah and then like the special aspects of the characters right because the protagonist has like the blue eyes but it's all in black and white otherwise it's Mm -hmm. so gripping whenever you just are so careful with what has colors it really pays off I think it did a lot of work for the story in this particular story in Vengeance Nevada. Mm -hmm. I think the the action scenes were pretty good. I like all the action lines and the way that the color kind of comes in to those action sequences as well. Absolutely. I like that the cyborg person, not to get too much away, is unlike other versions of cyborgs that I've seen. Like, it seems really novel the way that the person is drawn and, like, the armor. And it's kind of like a zombie cyborg feeling, which I really dig. I love whenever people cross feels of different monsters. And I thought that was really clever. Yes, I enjoyed it a lot. BJ sent this to me a very long time ago. (laughs) And (laughs) I have just kind of struggled when and where to talk about it. And so I'm so glad that I finally got to actually discuss it because it was a really fun comic. So fun. I loved every bit of it. I thought it set off a really perfect, exciting beginning to a story. When the last page came, I was like, no, (laughs) I'm not ready. I want more. And that to me is like the number one sign that something is exactly what it should be for a comic, you know, engaging, exciting, and full of intrigue and mystery. Yeah, I enjoyed it. a podcast that is all about making comic books more accessible to LGBTQ folks and women. So if you have a question about anything related to comics, comic adaptations, pop culture in general, conventions, cosplay, you name it, that's what we're here for. You can send us your questions at bitchesoncomics at gmail.com. Unfortunately, Gmail does not like the word bitch. They're pretty judgy about it. So (laughs) we can't have it spelled out. It is b.com. 
T-C-H-E-S-O-N-C-O-M-I-C-S at gmail.com. And do you remember there's no I'm bitch? If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by rating and reviewing us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Sarah Century, and you can find me at www.sarahcentury.com and Twitter and Instagram. Still Sarah Century on those. I'm S.E. Fleenor. You can learn more about me at sefleenor.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at at S.E. underscore Fleenor. Bitches on Comics is recorded by Kate Warner, who plays in the band Churchfire. You can find them at churchfiremusic.com. Music provided by Earth Control Pill, which you can find at earthcontrolpill.bandcamp.com. Bitches on Comics is recorded in Denver, Colorado. We want to recognize the indigenous peoples who have inhabited and do inhabit this land. The Arapaho Nation, the Ute Nation, the Cheyenne Nation, and others who have been erased from our history and collective memories through colonization. Anna Sheridan, New York Times bestselling author of Supernatural Horror, missing for nearly six months now. That's not possible. Is the compass broken? Or did I turn to the Given the circumstances of her disappearance, someone with a more vivid imagination might decide she'd pierce the veil, so to speak. Weak radio signal. 700 meters. Closing fast. There's no place for ghost stories and close encounters in this investigation, or any other. I need you to find me. What else would it be? The Shared Tapes, a serialized horror mystery podcast. Stream the complete series today on Realm and on all podcasting platforms.